Welcome to Kitchen Table Magic. I'm your host, Sam Tang. Each episode, I sit down with an inspiring person from the magic community. We hang out on their kitchen table to talk about Magic the Gathering as they share stories from the journey of their lives. This is episode 12. In this episode, I'm talking to the legendary Chris Pakula. You might have seen him featured in the magic documentary, Enter the Battlefield. Chris is also famously known as Meddling Mage. Chris became Meddling Mage by defeating John Finkel in the finals of the Magic Invitational in Kuala Lumpur in the year 2000. Chris shares some great stories with us from the past and also gives some serious words of wisdom from playing with John Finkel. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Chris Pakula. Hi everyone, this is Sam Tang, host of Kitchen Table Magic. I'm here today with Chris Pakula. Chris, how are you? Uh, I'm doing well. You know, kind of excited to be here. That's wonderful. Thanks so much for being here today. Um, how have you been? Uh, I've been I've been weird. Have you been playing a lot of Magic? Uh, I have been playing Magic off and on. I've I've had a couple intense periods of playing a lot of Magic for like two weeks, and then most of the rest of the time, I have not been playing any Magic at all. What have you been playing? The two busy periods this year, I uh, I was qualified for the regional Pro Tour qualifier for Spain. So leading up to that, I played a lot of standard for two weeks. Um, I played a lot of Bant Company, like really a lot of Bant Company. Cool. Um, I really liked the deck, and I knew it lost to Rally, but I liked it against everything else. And then the other flurry was sort of before Grand Prix Toronto and Grand Prix New York. I also played a lot of standard in that. I didn't really enjoy. I kind of uh, pushed myself a little too hard to uh, play a lot of Magic Online when I didn't really feel like playing Magic Online. I just was kind of kind of over it, as they say, by the end. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. Playing online is very different than playing Paper Magic. It is. It is very different. Um, it has its positives and its negatives. Um, I think the biggest issue for me playing online is I have a hard time enjoying playing Magic Online during the day. Like if I... I'm sitting here playing Magic Online, and I look out the window, and it's a nice day out. I'm like, oh, man, why am I doing this? Yeah. And uh, it used to be I used to love playing Magic Online late at night, but I just don't really enjoy staying up super late at night anymore. Like, I don't really want to go to bed at 3 in the morning. Yeah. But, you know, you, you can play Magic whenever you want. You know, you can always find a game. So that's something I can't do in my house. Oh, yeah. The convenience factor is definitely a plus point. Chris, I wanted to ask you, when did you start playing Magic? I started playing Magic... In 1994, the summer after my freshman year of college. Nice. I basically came home from college and a couple of my friends from high school had gone to a LARP, a live action role playing event of some sort. Yeah. And people there were playing Magic and they picked it up and uh, a bunch of us, you know, a half dozen of us maybe started playing that summer. What set was it? We were buying Revised. All the packs we went out and bought were Revised. Very cool. So there were like a ton of dual lands just floating around. Yeah, it's funny because like when you're new at Magic, you don't recognize dual lands as being anything special. I don't remember how many, you know, like I remember the Vesuvian Doppelgangers and the Shivan Dragons and the Demonic Hordes. Demonic Hordes was always my favorite card back then. Those are the cards I remember from Revised. You know, what? I'm sure some of us had Volcanic Islands and so forth, but it's just not something anyone cared about. Uh-huh. It took me, it took a while back then before we really started to figure things out like dual lands and so forth. Uh-huh. And so the power level of those cards were not necessarily recognized immediately. Right. Yeah. And obviously, no one knew that the game would take off in the next 20 years and have such complexity and depth and flavor. I mean, no one knew anything. I mean, that, the weird thing about playing back then is that, you know, this is somewhat, the internet's pretty new at that point. So it was pretty hard to find stuff out. We found out about moxes. Like, I think we went to a, a comic shop or something and someone had a mox. And we couldn't figure out why none of us had ever opened a Mox. Well, of course, it's because Moxes aren't in Revised. They're in Unlimited. <laughs> but we didn't know the difference. Oh, wow. So, And it took us quite a while. I, I think it took us a few weeks before somebody finally pieced it together. Like, oh, it's because this set's actually different than that set, even though they look the same. And most of the cards are the same. This set is missing a bunch of cards. And that's how long it took us to figure out. For a while, we were just, you know, thought they were some different sort of rarity that we never saw. Oh, wow. So there existed a time when certain Magic players didn't even know other sets existed. Uh, I guess we knew, well, certainly everyone the first time they walked into a comic shop back then, like the store was only selling revised. Like there was only one set to buy. Yeah. So it's very easy for someone who's never played before to think there's only one set. I mean, 
But even after we knew about, I think we figured out that there were legends. We saw someone who had legends cards. We'd never seen a gold border card before. You know, I think I saw a Sebastian Falconer, which is some red green three three or something. Uh huh. Maybe it's a four four. Anyway, but even knowing that there were other sets, revised and limited, look like the same set. You know, they both have Fireball, they both have Lightning Bolt, they both have Shivan Dragon. So they, they looked the same to, to me back then. So, you know, if someone had shown, if Mox had been in Legends, we would have understood why we weren't getting Moxes. <laughs> yeah. But <laughs> that's amazing to be in an era to be able to hold those cards in your hand. And I definitely feel a sense of awe and wonder and inspiration from that era. I do remember the first rare that I opened. Uh, I was telling you the story about how I got. Urza Saga booster packs from a lady that I cat sat for. And when I cracked open that pack and I went to the rare, and of course, I just noticed that the little symbols were different color. I didn't know it was a different rarity, but I definitely felt that it was special because it was Sarah Sanctum and it was a legendary land. And I was like, I don't know what an enchantment is, but this looks awesome. <laughs> I was like, those floating islands look like microscopes and that's awesome. Yeah, that's definitely not a card I would have uh, thought was powerful if it had been in my first pack of magic cards. <laughs> And so you played a bunch of revised and you, when did you decide to play competitively? We finally, towards the end of the summer, went to some shop somewhere and we saw there was like a flyer for a magic tournament. And we we're like, wow, there's magic tournaments. So we figured out what the, I forget how we figured out what the rules were, but we went to this tournament and, you know, we all got destroyed and uh, we learned a bunch of that first tournament. But once we found out there were tournaments, we were pretty hooked. And then when I had to go back to um, Cornell for the semester, I started going to, um, I had always gone to Cornell's Friday night gaming club. Cornell has a big game club. I don't know. I'm sure it still exists. Um, that met in Goldwyn Smith Hall. And of course, I had gone there freshman year to do other stuff and had never even really noticed the magic players. Uh huh. But then when I went back sophomore year, I realized there were a bunch of magic players there and I still didn't really know anything. Like I still didn't really understand what, I didn't know what beta was. I didn't really know. I do remember, so yeah, I met a, I met a bunch of people, and, and of course the people who were like, there weren't tournaments really yet, or, or there weren't tournaments anyone cared about. So really, the people who had stature in the community were just people who had cards. Uh huh. So like everyone was just so impressed with people who had like four beta gauntlets of might in their deck. Like that was the kind of thing. Yeah. So so it was really all about what cards you had, since there was no real no real competitive outlet for people kind of proving themselves. And then I slowly figured out what was going on, like what beta was, what revise was, and you know what good decks were. Right. And obviously, everyone back then just basically played what's the equivalent of vintage now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's it's funny to think about back then how confusing things were because I remember not understanding why people thought like City of Brass was a good card. Uh huh. Just because my understanding of, of how of mana was poor. But also, I remember not understanding why people thought Gauntlet of Might was a good card. That card really wasn't very good, right? There's right. a bunch of cards back then that just because... Back then, I think people were must, much more confused by rarity. When you saw something... And this happened to me as a, as a new Magic player. When you, when, you, when you saw a card was a rare, you sort of assumed it must be good because why else would they make it a rare? Uh-huh. And if you couldn't figure out why it was good, you must be doing something wrong. And it actually took quite a while for a lot of people to get out of this like feeling. Like you're just kind of confused by rarity. Like this card must be great. It's rare. Oh, that's really interesting. So yeah, but Gauntlet of Might was like so big. That's the, that's the big thing I remember about going back to Cornell is how much people loved Gauntlet of Might when I first started really getting into the, the magic scene there. Do you still have some of those old cards? Uh, No. Well, I, I do have some old cards, yes. But uh, I don't really have... I definitely have the same Maze of Myth that I opened out of a pack of the dark. Uh-huh. I know that. That's the card I just, I always point at as what's possibly my oldest card. Nice. Um, I don't know about my, I'm sure I have a bunch of the same revised cards, but they just aren't particularly interesting. You know, I never opened beta or, or anything, so. Uh-huh. You know, I mean, the, the, the bummer about getting in a revised is, is if you started in revised, the next few sets were terrible. <laughs> like you, you opened the dark and fallen empires and homelands and it was just kind of like it was kind of misery for a while after that yeah there was not a lot of uh, interaction <laughs> there was not a lot going on there's just a lot of bad cards in those packs really bad cards chris i wanted to ask you when you really felt like you leveled up in magic when you went from casual player to now you're making headway in tournaments 
Um, now you're asking, you're asking questions about a long time ago. I mean, I definitely started to win the first time I won one of the local tournaments, I feel like was sort of a big deal. And when I went home for the summer after freshman year, which I think is, which was still pre pro tour, because this is now 1995 and the pro tour doesn't start until 1996, I believe. That was a big jump because basically a, me and a, and a close friend of mine from Indiana, we just would win every local tournament. Like tournaments back then were very, were very different. Like uh-huh. there weren't that many good small tournaments, but like it seemed like much more easy to find like a 200 person tournament. I don't know why, just the, the nature of how, they, because they would get run at like game conventions and stuff. And I just remember, you know, me and my friend just winning every small tournament we went to and then we went to like a tournament at chicago comic con that had like 450 people in it and we met in the finals wow like so there's that summer we really realized we were just we i don't know i guess we felt like we really knew what we were doing and of course we were playing all just blue white based mana drain decks like all our decks were four mana drain four counterspell four swords to plowshares type decks amazing you know like we were beating people like people would cast Juzam Jin and we would cast Moat and then they would die to their Juzam Jin. So that, that was the kind of thing. <laughs> That's the kind of magic we're talking about back then. What's so funny about the archetype that you just described feels a lot like right now in Legacy Counterbalance Top. Sure, it does. But I mean, this is all based off uh, this is all based off the deck. This is the, I mean, I don't know if you've read the, the Rob Han Schools of Magic, but I mean, this is all the Weissman School. This is all just the deck. Uh-huh. Which, of course, is Brian Weissman. I mean, this was like, obviously, one of the first things I remember reading about Magic on the internet was just like there was this guy in California whose deck only had two Sarah Angels to win. He had no other way to win the game. Huh. And we're just like, well, that's not possible. You can't just look two ways to win, but that's what it was. And so we started doing something very similar to that. What was your win con? Uh, I had Sarah Angels for a while, mostly Sarah Angels. Well, Mirror Universe started to become a thing. A lot of people started playing with Mirror Universe as a way to win. Back then, you could, you died at the end of phase mm-hmm. instead of immediately. So you could, you could do something like, Use City of Brass to make yourself go to zero life, and then you could you could mana burn at the end of your opponent's turn, and then untap, and then tap a City of Brass to go to zero, and then give them the Mirror Universe, and they would die. Oh, interesting. Um, so most of my success back then, my deck had some combination of Sarah Angels, uh, Mirror Universe, and Fireballs. There were moments where we experimented with things like um, the Abyss and Jade Statue, and you know, balance was a big deal back then. So Jade Statues were powerful, and Jade Statue could block Jews engine. Sounds sounds ridiculous, but like uh, everyone had their own version. David Humphreys, you know, he works for Wizards for R and D now, and he's a Magic Hall of Famer. His version of the deck had Mirror Universe, Fireball, Rasputin, Dreamweaver, and Sulkinar the Swamp King. Uh-huh. I believe those were his win conditions. You could do a lot of different things. And another thing is uh, me and my Indiana friends, we would go to these tournaments and we would actually try to win with really bad win conditions. Like we would take the Sarah Angels out of our deck and replace them. I remember my friend Jay replaced the Sarah Angels at Serpent Generator, which uh-huh. is a really terrible card. Yeah. And then I remember I wanted to win with Juzam Jin, so I replaced them with Juzam Jin's one for one tournament. And my opponent sideboarded in Circle Protection Black. And I was like, I never thought of this. I never thought someone might have Circle Protection Black. Uh-huh. Because obviously no one has Circle Protection White. Uh-huh. It's very rare in, in the history of Magic. Circle Protection Black and Circle, Prote- Circle of Protection Red have been cast about, you know, a hundred times more often than the other three Circular Protections combined. Right. At least. So I wasn't I wasn't used to Circle Protections being good against me, but suddenly I had Black Creatures in my deck. <laughs> That's so interesting. It's so funny that you're talking about these perspective shifts. Uh, <laughs> in like the meta, <laughs> and there, the internet wasn't there really for people to talk about this meta shift. With the internet these days, do you feel like that the meta gets solved so much faster with all the information that's being shared between people online? Yeah, I think that's that's pretty obvious. I mean, and I think Wizards has made the decisions they've made with the rotation are are somewhat to address that. Yeah, I mean, the meta does. I don't want to say it gets stale. It's not solved. So maybe it gets stale. Maybe it is stale, but not solved. I mean. No one really knows, but things get to a point where I, I, I've been talking to people about Grand Prix. I'm not going to Grand Prix Minnesota this week, but you know, a lot of my friends are, and, and they're basically, you know, I don't know what deck to play. I feel like I'm throwing darts, like because once once you get a few weeks into a format, no reasonable deck that you might pick is going to be that good or that bad unless you really figure out something. Every once in a while, something sneaks through, and that's what's great. When someone shows up at a Grand Prix in a format that's a month old and has some deck that no one else has seen and, and does well, that that's that's amazing. But most of the time. You know, you get people who who are playing a deck that's made up of reasonable magic cards, and 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 the results are so close to 
50% in most of your matchups that the amount of games you would have to play to actually feel like this is the right deck choice, it just isn't really possible. So I do think we reached the point where deck choice is unimportant, assuming that you're picking like one of the reasonable decks. We get to that point much more quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just like that. I mean, everything is kind of different as far as magic goes. I mean, we're all working off not just the internet, but just years of accumulated theory that we didn't have back then. Hmm. Do you feel like theory has changed a lot? No, I don't think theory's changed a lot. It's just got better and bigger. Mm-hmm. I don't really think that there's anything people used to think that they don't that they think is wrong now. I, I don't think that people were. Um, well, that's not completely true. I'm sure if we went back to old draft formats, things would be a little bit different. And obviously, there, I'm sure there were decks that were missed in the early days, but that's just because there was so so many fewer people working on it, and so much less time going into it, and so much. You know, back then, everyone had to figure everything out on, on their own. So a lot of things that ended up being easy enough to figure out that everyone figured it out, everyone still put time into them. Where now, if something's easy to figure out, you know, you get home from work and you check the internet and someone else figured it out before you put any time into it at all. So you don't even spend that little bit of time. Even the easy stuff, the fact that other people find it out fast helps you. It doesn't matter whether or not you would have eventually figured it out. It just saves you time so that you may figure out something else. So it's just a very different, very different situation. But I don't think that there's been any real, wow, people used to think this, they were dead wrong. I don't know if there's a lot of things like that. The theory has really blown up and really developed. There's a lot of thought out there. (laughs) Magic cards also used to be a lot simpler. Mm -hmm. I mean, and and back then there were a lot of people who just didn't understand theory well at all. Like, I always tell people that I'm worse relative to other Magic players than I used to be by a lot. But I'm actually much, but my understanding of Magic now is much better than my understanding of Magic used to be. Uh-huh. Like, my theory 20 years ago was pretty poor, was, was very poor compared to my Magic theory understanding now. But everyone else's theory was way worse than mine back then. Yeah. <laughs> they just had none. Yeah. Like, people wouldn't even understand why you were casting cards you were casting. Interesting. I mean, I think I have this famous... This is a quote people like a lot. I came home. I don't remember what. I think I was home for a holiday or something. So I was back in Indiana and I went to a local card shop. And I was playing mono black Necropotence against someone who was playing mono black without Necropotence. And when I cast Necro, you know, I paid five life and drew five cards. Uh huh. And he picked up the card and read it and he said, what makes your card so good that you need to draw that many? And I was like, I don't know if that question makes any sense. Huh? <laughs> and, and if you don't understand why I want to draw five cards, you're in a lot of trouble. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, so he picked... Okay, so he just didn't understand why you were drawing five cards. He just didn't understand why someone would want to pay... F- I mean, that was very common back then. I mean, that was, you know, there's an inquest or whatever ranked at the worst card in Isaac. People didn't understand why you would want to pay life to draw cards. You already get to draw one card for free every turn. Why would you give that up and pay life instead? That is fascinating. Yeah, and it took a long time for people to understand a lot of things. Like I said, the deck with just the two Sarah Angels seemed like nonsense. But now it's very obvious why it works. He had four Disrupting Scepters in his deck, so he would never, his Sarah Angels never die because he would not cast them when his opponents had cards in their hand. <laughs> and then he would have one counter spell, and that was it. Oh my gosh, yeah. So it's easy. A lot of the stuff that we, you know, took a while to understand. I mean, now it's it's obvious to everyone why City Rest is a good card now, but back then it was not. You so you said that in 1996 you started playing in Pro Tours. Right, I played in Pro Tour One, so I played in the first Pro Tour. What was that like? Uh, well, you had to you had to call in to qualify to qualify. I use the word qualify very loosely here. To uh-huh. get into the tournament, you basically had to had to call in and get on a list, and uh, and I didn't even do the call myself. A friend of mine called in and got like four of us or maybe five of us into the tournament. My strongest memory from the tournament, kind of right outside of the tourney, was they kind of had like a players lobby. Uh-huh. I guess it wasn't just players; it was like a it was just like a little lobby with huge screens showing people playing, which is you never see this now, like in like giant TV screens with feature matches. That'd be really cool, right? We, we don't really get that except at Pro Tours, I guess. Um, but back then, it was pretty amazing. And I, I very I remember David Humphreys had Sylvan Library in play. I just thought it was so cool, him on camera, drawing the three cards, deciding which ones to take. I don't know. I, I really loved watching him play on that huge screen. Uh-huh. And I remember how he played his fifth land, and he had Autumn Willow in, play, in his hand. 
And Autumn Willow is a six casting cost legend from Homelands. And then on his opponent's turn, his opponent played a six lane and played their own Autumn Willow. And back then, according to legend rule, if your opponent played the legend first, you couldn't play yours. So yeah. he was stranded with his Autumn Willow in his hand. Like, we just watched it all unfold on camera and it was like, oh, how could that happen? <laughs> like it was just, so I don't know. That, that's my strongest memory is how cool it was watching David Humphreys play on the giant screen. That, that was definitely the highlight. That's awesome. Yeah, I got 26th place. I had someone play against me with marked strip mines and uh, didn't get any sort of ruling against him or anything. Just they just replaced his strip mines. It was kind of a it was kind of the Wild West. The begin I guess Pro Tour One was the beginning of the Wild West in that Pro Tour. Uh huh. Yeah, it was a long time ago. You know, I, just, I don't remember a, a round by round or anything, but I do remember David Humphreys using his Sylvan Library on the big screen. That's super cool. And did you play in Pro Tour number two? I did. I played in all. I mean, I probably played in the first 20 Pro Tours or something. I don't know, approximately. You, But you qualified for all of them. Yeah. I uh, So I made top... I think my performance at Pro Tour 1 qualified me for Pro Tour 2. Uh-huh. And then I think I won a Pro Tour qualifier for Pro Tour 3. Mm-hmm. And then I made top 32 at Pro Tour 3, which qualified me for Pro Tour 4. And then I made top eight at Pro Tour 4 and Pro Tour 5. Uh-huh. So now I was just qualified for basically everything after that for a long time. That's awesome. And they had Planeswalker points back then? No, they did not have Planeswalker points back then. <laughs> they still had DCI ratings back then, like actual ELO chess style ratings. Oh, yeah, like an MMR. How many Pro Tours have you played in your career? Uh, I actually don't know. I think it's 30-ish, maybe high 20s. What is your regimen for playing Magic in a competitive level? My whole approach to competitive magic is somewhat haphazard at this point. Uh-huh. I think that has been uh, a bit of the problem. My motivation waxes and wanes. Amount of preparation is inconsistent. Yeah, I, I don't really have a very consistent approach to it right now. Uh-huh. You know, for a while I was just going to the tournaments I felt like going to, but then, you know, if I would do okay, I would kind of force myself to go to a tournament. I mean, that's kind of what just happened to me at Grand Prix New York. Like, I actually wasn't going to go to either Grand Prix Toronto or Grand Prix New York. But we did pretty well at the Team Grand Prix. You know, not great or anything, but we went 11-3, and three, which was... Mm-hmm. But uh, we were, you know, 11-3 was a, a decent performance, but I got three pro points. Mm-hmm. You know, I had not got more than... All my uh, recent Grand Prix had been like one and two points. Mm-hmm. So for me to get three at once, put me from 145 to 148. So I was like, well, you know what? I'm so close to being on the ballot now. I'll just go to these next two tournaments and try to get the last three points. But there was a reason I was skipping those tournaments. I just really wasn't excited about it. Um, like I said, I quit my job a few months ago and I've been really trying to kind of just kind of adjust my approach to life, figure out what, I, what I'm trying to do with my time. And I had kind of already decided that going to these tournaments was not what I wanted to do. And by the time we got to Grand Prix New York, the second week in a row, I just had lost interest. Uh-huh. And I don't, but you know, that doesn't say anything about my long-term interest in Magic. I just knew that I didn't feel like playing Magic that weekend, and I tried to anyway, and it just didn't go well. Yeah. You know, what's really exciting right now in the Magic community is Enter the Battlefield that came out, and you were featured in it. Yeah, you know, a few years ago, I guess it was like three years ago now, I was approached by Nate Holt and Sean Kornhauser. They told me they were going to make a full-length type magic documentary project, and they were interested in me being in it. For for a couple of years, they would follow me around a bit. They, you know, came along on drives to a couple of local tournaments. They'd show up at my house. Um, you know, they'd track me down at Grand Prix. They would track me down at Pro Tour Dublin. And I had no real idea what was going on with the rest of the film. I didn't know they were I didn't know what other players were involved at all, and I didn't really, you know, I, I didn't really bother them about it because I didn't know what they wanted to tell me, and I didn't it really didn't really make any difference. I was just kind of living my life the way I was doing it, so whatever. I was just going to keep doing what I was doing, and they could come along if they wanted. I was really happy with how my part of the movie came out. I, I thought it's really genuine. Like that's, and I and I can say that just for everyone in the movie, to be honest. Like I think every, I think the real strength of the movie is that every single person it really is exactly how they seem in the movie. There's no. There's nothing fake. They, they didn't do anything to try to create craziness that wasn't there, or conflict that wasn't there, or, or to try to make some story that wasn't there. Like those people really are like that, and I think that's a real strength of the film. And that's, I think that's definitely true for mine. You know, I've had some people ask me if I was happy with how I was portrayed in the movie, and I was like, well, yeah, I pretty much have to be happy with it because that's just how it is. Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of people came up with me at the two Grand Prix because, because of course, the movie hit Netflix right before the Grand Prix Toronto, so. And uh, I had a lot of people come up to me and say nice things. Oh, yeah. 
I mean, I watched it. I'm rooting for you. Yeah, a lot of people are rooting for me. <laughs> That's true, which, 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 which is nice. I mean, I am excited. I think that uh, I, I am a little... The focus on the Hall of Fame is getting a little old for me, to be honest. Uh huh. Just partly because I think I'm actually... I think I might get on the ballot and knock it in. I think that's a very likely scenario. So that's part of it where I, I feel like people come up to me and they're really excited about me getting back on the ballot. Mm-hmm. And I feel like saying, well, don't get too excited yet because I might get back on the ballot, but it doesn't mean I'm going to get in the Hall of Fame. But it's like, I don't want to go through and explain that because they're like, oh, why not? And I'm like, well, because you have know, this many top eights and, and blah, blah, blah. Like, it's just not, it's not a conversation I really want to get in with, with people. Yeah. But yeah, part of my motivation was just, I just wanted to get back on the ballot just so people would. Not that I, I don't get annoyed at, at the people for asking me, are you on, well, how many points do you need to get on the ballot? Like, I, I have no problem with the people asking me, but the whole topic in general is getting a little old. Uh-huh. But I mean, honestly, everyone, everyone, when it comes to like, you know, people are nice to me as if I'm a Hall of Famer. I guess that's, that's how I would put it. Like, I can't <laughs> imagine being in the Hall of Fame. Is it going to make people be any nicer to me than they are now? So I'm pretty lucky that way. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, Chris, how did you become meddling mage? Um, so, well, Meddling Mage uh, was the prize for winning the Magic Invitational. The Magic Invitational basically used to be sort of the all-star game of Magic. Uh-huh. It was uh, 16 players playing unusual formats. Usually there would be a split between, I think there were usually, there were five formats. So you'd play, because um, you played every other competitor once. So you'd have three rounds each of five different formats. And they were usually a split. And they were all created by Mark Rosewater. Mm-hmm. I'm sure he had help, but you know, this, the whole event was Mark Rosewater's thing. Uh huh. And they were kind of split between things that were basically like normal magic formats and then things that were a little weird. And I guess they did them for about 10 years, I want to say. And then the prize would be you would get to be on your own magic card. So I won it one year when it was in Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia. Amazing. I beat John Finkel in the finals and uh, Meddling Mage was a prize. Cool. I guess I probably played like six invitationals. I went to invitationals in Malaysia, Australia, Brazil, Spain, Seattle. I feel like I'm forgetting one. Oh, South Africa. So yeah, so I played in at least those, and it's possible I'm forgetting one. But yeah, they were really, really great events, and they, were, you know, they were approximately the 16 best players in the world. It didn't always work out that way because mm-hmm. sometimes I was definitely still in the invitational when I was not really one of the best players in the world. Like when I started to play a little less, because there was some you know, popularity aspect to it as well. So if somebody was sort of really great, but kept a low profile, they might not make the invitational because, you know, the slots were like whoever won the pro tour and then whoever had the most points, but then also like there would be a vote for the last four slots and stuff like that. So, and that was slightly different every year as well. So they don't do the invitational anymore, but they do like worlds now. Right. Worlds is sort of, you know, they, they still do kind of wacky formats at worlds. Like they'll still do like cube draft. Mm-hmm. But then not anything as strange as what they did the Invitational. The Invitational had like duplicate sealed deck, but like half the cards are just stuff Rosewater made up. Like that was the kind of, and you wouldn't see them until you got there. Oh, that's fascinating. Okay, so you were not kidding when you said there was some goofy stuff. So, Oh, right. Yeah, you would get there and they would hand you a, a stack of 75 magic cards. One year they were all one drops. Oh my goodness. So you would all get the same 75 cards and have to build a sealed deck out of it. And yeah, one year it was like all one drops. One year, I think it was like future, future kind of thing. Like, like Mark included a bunch of cards from future sets, but they weren't always exactly how the cards ended up being because it was so early in the process that they were just kind of like them. I remember, I remember Chris Mage, whatever set that's in. That was Mercadian Masks, I think. Right. So, so I, I know that we had Mercadian Masks cards in our duplicate seal before Mercadian Masks was released. That is so cool. Yeah, there was. I just I, and I remember the names of some of the fake cards. I'll never forget. Um, Speedy Zombie was my favorite name. It was just a zombie with haste. It was called Speedy Zombie. It was called Speedy Zombie. Speedy Zombie. What was the power and toughness on that? I believe it was a four-two haste zombie for five. Wow. It was like black four four-two haste zombie. <laughs> and uh, so yeah, duplicate sealed. There was these crazy auction formats where people. You, for those, we were given the decks ahead of time because it was kind of complicated. I, I believe we were given decks ahead of time. So, like, there'd be 15 decks and, and they would get auctioned off by, like, and you would bid by, like, life total and starting cards. Oh, my so, goodness. So, going to, and, and cards was, like, so six cards, 20 life was a higher bid than seven cards. 
one life. So giving up a card was always the biggest thing. Oh my goodness. It's kind of like that show Cutthroat Kitchen with Alton Brown, except Mark Rosewater is making you have right. like one less card. Right. And then there was also, actually, there's also a year where I, there was an, so yeah, it was an auction of the people is what it was called the first year where a bunch of like, uh, just a bunch of people from the magic community submitted decks and then Mark picked the 16 he liked best, I think. Uh huh. Or maybe there was a vote. And then we, so these were, these were just kind of wacky. And, and because of the, because the natural balancing of the auction, there was no reason to have the decks balanced. Oh. So some of the decks were really good. Some of the decks were really bad. So you just had to, you had to guess. And because, uh, you know, someone's always going to get the worst deck at seven cards, 20 life. Someone just gets to play normal. But then there was a year where we actually got, there was an auction of the geniuses. And it was a year I wasn't going to the invitational. They, they got like 16 good players to design decks for the auction challenge. That was really cool. Um, what well, I'm trying to remember what, what other crazy, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of very strange formats. It was pretty great. You know, it's like build your own block, which is obviously not that crazy, but you know, it's, it's still really interesting where you, you pick one first set, one second set, one third set and build like a fake standard deck out of it. We played vintage. We played vintage the year that I won. And that was one of the formats, just regular vintage. Cool. Yeah, it was a lot of cool stuff. It was a great tournament. That's amazing that there was all of that, those crazy formats. Did they just have a ton of cards or did everyone make proxies or? Uh, for like duplicate sealed or? Yeah. Did they bring all the product for you guys? Oh yeah, they would bring everything for us. That's amazing. So Chris, you said that earlier you won the year where you played vintage. Do you feel like you playing back in 1995 contributed to that? Uh, I would say no. I mean, vintage was so different back then. I mean, we were playing both John and I. So I beat John Finkel in the finals, which mm-hmm. is obviously the real impressive accomplishment here is I beat John in a three out of five. Trust me, I've never beat John in a three out of five anything. <laughs> and uh, no, we both were playing blue, black, um, necro, necro donate decks with illusions of grandeur. So wow. you know, it wasn't it wasn't like anything that we played in the past. Uh huh. So. Okay, so you were in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. Mm-hmm. You win the Invitational. What's going through your head? Uh, I mean, I was really excited. I really wanted to win. One thing about the Invitational back then is I, I really wanted the people who weren't cheaters to win, and I, and I really wanted the cheaters to lose, and that was a big... Every year, there were two or three players who we all thought were cheaters, and we really just... It was just a real bummer having them in the event. Like, I didn't want to worry... I didn't want to go to this event and worry about... You know, first of all, I was just upset they were there because... I didn't really trust the results. I mean, Mike Long is obviously the, the, the person who really stands out here, but there were a couple others. But I mean, it's really Mike Long. So like nobody wanted to play against them. It wasn't fun to go to this event that was that was supposed to be, you know, it was still competitive, but like to, to have to go there and like worry that someone's going to cheat me was a pretty miserable experience. So yeah, I really wanted to win. I was really excited. I know it's a little bit of a downer to talk about some controversy, but yeah, I've spoken to a lot of people in the Magic community before speaking to you, and they very much held you up as a champion of the integrity of the game, that you very much stood up for Magic and said, we don't want cheating, we want good, fair play, this is about skill, creativity, teamwork, tenacity. So yeah, there used to, there used to be a lot of cheating in Magic, I mean, there's no question, there's, there's still cheating now, um, but it's, it's, it's not like it was. Um, part of that is because the average age of a competitive player back then was just much lower. Like back when I was, you know, I was, when I was top eight in pro tours, I was what, 21 years old, 22 years old, 23 years old. Um, and I felt like I was one of the older players then. Now, if you top eight a pro tour at age 22, you're probably on the younger side, right? Mm-hmm, right. And the number of t- people who top eight in their teens is really low now when it was not low. So that, so that is part of it. It's just a fact that a lot of people, when given the opportunity and there's a lot of money at stake when they're 15 or 16 years old, they're not going to make necessarily the same decision they would make when they're 25 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, so the players being younger was definitely part of it. Also, I, you know, Patrick Chapin said this in Enter the Battlefield, and I had never actually thought of it this way, and it's perfect. He, some people had the attitude that it was like following someone. In, in basketball, like if the ref didn't call it, it was just a good play, and that that is the attitude some people had. Oh, interesting. And yeah, we we were very vocal about how it wasn't cool. You know, we were not going to let our friends do it. Like we didn't want to hear stories about it. We discourage people from. You know, there would be these groups of people who who kind of all cheat, and we would just you know try to explain to people how that just wasn't really. <laughs> I mean, it's not so obvious, but I mean, honestly, a big part of the issue was Mark Rosewater. Um, you know, I, I, I like Mark very much, um, although I don't talk to him very often anymore, but I used to talk to him a lot. 
in the early days of competitive magic, he really had an attitude like it was professional wrestling. Like, you know, like he thought if you want to have podcasts about magic, you're going to need to have stories. And if you're going to have stories, you're going to need villains. And that's what Mike Long was to him. Mike Long to him was the perfect villain. Really? Nobody wanted anybody to win as much as everybody wanted Mike Long to lose. Interesting. Like so many of the great magic stories are involved Mike Long because... I, I, yeah, most of my good magic stories, probably, you know, a good bulk of them involved Mike Long because he was such, he was just such a villain. So Mark was right. Mark was absolutely right that when you have terrible villains like that, it does make better stories. But there's more to magic than, than stories. <laughs> if you could take another quick aside, what is the short backstory on Mike Long? I, I am familiar with the person, but I'm not sure as to why Mark Rosewater said he was a villain. My, my, Mike was just a serial magic cheat. Okay. I mean, he just cheated a lot. He cheated in play, cheated in playtesting. He he bullied people in the community, like in social situations. He, I mean, he cheated in, in the Pro Tour. He won Pro Tour Paris. You know, his very very famous moment of him cheating on camera, where he plays a land and then says he needs to talk to a judge away from the table, and then has a extremely long, extremely incoherent conversation with the judge where. No one really understands why they're having the conversation. There's no clear question he's asking. And then after an extremely long time for a, for a judge conversation that, that really has no point, he goes back, sits on the table, and plays another land. Oh, interesting. <laughs> I mean, it's just, and there's so many stories like that. So yeah, he was just really, yeah, he was a cheater. And okay, wizards, wizards, in our opinion, did not do enough to stop him. They let it go on for way too long. And I, and I do think that a big part of that was because... At that point in time, Mark thought it was good for the game to have a bad guy. And, you know, it's true. Enter the Battlefield would be a much more, you know, might be, it might be a more compelling movie if there was somebody we all didn't like to root against. And every time they came on this, you know, came on the screen, you're like, oh, this guy again, I hope he gets it. I mean, I think, that, uh, <laughs> like, I don't know if you've seen um, the uh, Donkey Kong documentary. I think it's called The King of Kongs. Oh, I've heard of it. I saw a small preview for it. So in that movie, there's like a villain. Yeah. And, you know, he seems like a real jerk and you're just rooting against him the whole time. But a lot of the aftermath of that movie, a lot of stuff I read made it sound like this guy's really not that bad. They really fudged reality to make him seem like a villain because they thought it made a better movie. And yeah, I mean, it's kind of like magic is sort of villainless right now. So I, I get what Mark was coming from. But man, cheaters are the worst. It's just, it's a miserable experience to worry about cheaters. That's so interesting. And, and when, yeah, so we did our best, you know, we really pleaded with Mark to try to change his point of view on it. We really tried to get people on top of things. I, uh, I remember I was at, I was at a pro attorney qualifier, I believe in, I want to say I was in Virginia or DC, somewhere down there. And, uh, this was quite a long time ago. And I overheard some 14 year old kid or 13 year old kid telling his friends a story where, about how he had cheated his opponent the previous round. He's just bragging about it. So I didn't really know what to do. So I, uh, you know, I just went over to the judge. I said, look, I don't know if there's anything to be done here. I don't know what I'm supposed to do, but this kid right over there, this is his name. I, I, I guess I knew his name. Um, or I pointed him out. It's like this kid says he cheated his previous round opponent. I don't know if there's any way you can check on it. I don't know if there's anything to do, but he's telling a long detailed story right now about how he cheated his previous round's opponent. So half hour later, this kid is, sitting outside the tournament crying because he's been disqualified for cheating. And uh, so I felt somewhat like a jerk, but I was like, well, whatever, you know, he's yeah. cheating. I don't care that he's 13 or 14. Um, two years ago, I'd say, maybe even less, he messaged me on Facebook and thanked me for getting him thrown out of that tournament. Said it had a positive impact on his life. Wow. I got him disqualified at a magic tournament 15 years ago, and he's thanking me for it. You have a passion for the game. You started when the game started. You were at Pro Tour number one. I mean, for all the listeners right now, if any Pro Tour going forward was call in, everyone would go to that Pro Tour. <laughs> yeah, it would <laughs> be a little different now. And I think that because that you were at Pro Tour one through 20, you have a passion for the game. You nurtured the game. You were there at the game's infancy, especially in the competitive scene. And it would make absolute sense for you to nurture an environment where that was healthy for good competitive play. And so 
I really appreciate you sharing that because I understand that sentiment of, oh, I felt kind of like a jerk. But you know what? Hey, he, he cheated. He was cheating and he I was bragging like about it. <laughs> well, but I'm glad that there is a happy ending that that particular individual messaged you and was like, hey, you know what? It had a positive impact on me. You know, for me, you're not going to get any better if you're just cheating your way to the top, right? It's such a deep, thoughtful game. There are so many players playing it. There's so many different ways to play. You don't have to cheat to get there, to get some enjoyment out of it. Whether or not you have to cheat or whether you could cheat, I mean, that, that doesn't really matter. Like, cheating to me is stealing. Yeah. Like, there have been players um, like Mike Long who were both one of the best players and also cheated. You know, that's what they say about mm-hmm. Barry Bonds in baseball. Like, mm-hmm. He was the best player before he started oh, cheating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, of course, he was going to be the best player after you know, people always say like uh, Alex Bertoncini. I don't know if you're familiar with him. That yes, he was, I am. Yes. He's very good at magic, but also just cheated. Um, there's other players who, you know, the guy who was going to be rookie of the year a couple of years ago, whose name I'm blanking on, who got caught stacking, you know, stacking the opponent's draw steps. Yes, I heard about that. No one ever thought that guy was good. So when he got caught cheating, it was like, oh, this makes sense now. How could <laughs> this guy didn't seem very good? How was he winning so much? Yeah. But the players who are actually good who cheat are, are much hard to catch. And uh, I don't know if it's true that you can say that you're not going to get better by cheating because some, some people have paired getting good at magic with cheating. It's scary. Hmm. But I mean, it's, it's just stealing. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people when they're 15 years old, they think it's an okay way to steal, I guess. You know, they, a lot of people justify that. But yeah, when it's, it's hard to start, it's hard to forgive people once they, uh, once they're 25 years old instead of 15 years old. I wanted to jump back to the other fork of the road, teleport yourself back to that moment when you beat John Finkel. The confetti comes down, Mark Rosewater's running towards you with just nothing but high fives. Ah. Let's talk about that part. I mean, winning, winning the invitation was big for me because it's always been, it was going to be big for me no matter what. Obviously, it's a really cool prize. It's a really cool tournament. And I already mentioned, like, it, it was big that I really wanted, I wanted the good guys to win. Like, Mike Long did win one year and everyone was bummed. Uh-huh. And, you know, one, one of the good guys to win. But the other thing is I, I, I never beat John. It's always been so hard for me to beat John. It's like, obviously, it's, it's hard to beat John. He's the, be- you know, the best player in the history of Magic. Mm-hmm. So beating John is never easy for anyone. doesn't matter who. You're usually going to lose to John, right? But for me, it was disproportionately difficult. I've lost to John so much whenever we played. We used to do, um, when I lived in New York... Um, I moved to Philly about five years ago from New York. There's a lot of magic players in New York, and they draft at John Finkel's apartment all the time. Uh huh. So they used to keep, I don't know if they still do, but they keep stats. So every time we would draft, like someone would submit the stats to the database at the end. So we had everyone's, every match result. Uh huh. My match results versus John were just unbelievably bad. Like winning like, you know, 20% of my matches against him or something. Oh just my some, goodness. Just, so I've never been able to beat John. So for me to beat him in that tournament in the finals was a pretty big deal because, you know, it's like nobody, I don't think anyone really expected me to win. Um, so, I mean, I, I actually always, I usually did pretty well in the Invitational. Yeah. Like, I think I had one other year where I got third and I was usually in the top half. So I think I was just a little bit better at the weird formats than most of the people there, regardless of our relative rankings in a pro tour. Because there were, there were a handful of people who were really bad at the strange formats. Uh-huh. Um, Randy Bueller really struggled with the Invitational. Um, oh, really? Nikolai Herzog really struggled with the Invitational. Um, yeah, I think that maybe they're just different way of thinking about things. Like, I know Randy, for sure, Randy doesn't want to build a sealed deck out of cards he's just saw for the first time five minutes ago. I don't think that's his... <laughs> I don't think that's his... That's not his relative strength versus the other great Magic players. Uh-huh. Anytime you beat John Finkel with something on the line, it, it feels pretty good. That's pretty you know, John awesome. And I were friend, John and I are really good friends. So there was no rivalry, you know. Was, mm-hmm. I mean, except personal. There was no like, you know, if it, if I didn't win, I'd want John to win. Yeah, it was cool. It's also it was also uh, the other really funny thing about that tournament is that I did not have decks I liked for that tournament at all. I was really unhappy with all the decks I had brought with me. I I just I I, I don't know. I don't remember if we didn't have much time to test or we just didn't test um i usually traveled these things with um david price yeah he went to cornell also and we were you know we were on the same team dead guy was what our team was called back then for the first few years of the pro tour uh-huh and i don't remember if we didn't test or what but we just didn't have decks we liked so i had made an offer to dave humphreys before the tournament started that if that if he gave me decks 
if he told me what he was playing in each format so that I could play those decks, if I won the Invitational, I would fly him to the location of the next the Invitational the next year, regardless of whether or not he was in it. Because the Invitational always overlapped with the Grand Prix. So because I won the Invitational, I had to fly Dave Humphreys to the Grand Prix at the next year's Invitational, which ended up being in Australia. So I had to buy Dave Humphreys a plane ticket to Australia. Uh-huh. <laughs> so that, that, was the old, that was the one downside to winning the Invitational. <laughs> but Medley Mage is worth it. I would buy 10 plane tickets to Australia to, to have my picture on a magic card. So... You know what's so funny, Chris? A little bit about my own history. I remember new set is being released, and there's a new card. And I remember being in my local game shop, and I was staring down in the counter through the glass, and I was like, what is this? I've never seen a gold-colored card so flashy and interesting. And I looked at that, and I loved playing blue at the time, and I also liked playing white weenie, and I was like, white and a blue for a 2-2? That's already pretty good. <laughs> yeah, back then it was. I mean, in fact, the... The card I submitted was actually much worse than Medley Mage because oh, really? I never, because back then I never would have thought they would make a card this good. Just a two-two for for a blue for blue blue back then. The only creature that existed like that was like Lord of Atlantis. So back then, I believe they had us all submit ideas before the tournament even started because that way, kind of like the fans at home could root for people based on the card they wanted to make. Oh, interesting. I know they did that for some of the tournaments. I'm not sure they actually did that for the one I won. So that's possibly not true from Nothing Mage. Um, I remember it being sort of a painful process, me trying to pick a card, because I they knew what I wanted to do. They uh-huh. knew I wanted to be like a small blue creature that cost one or two mana mm-hmm. that was disruptive to like combo decks. Uh-huh. I essentially wanted, I, I essentially wanted like, you know, the kind of thing you would, that would go on a fish deck or a, or a, you know, a sliver deck, a counter sliver deck or something, like a small blue creature that was disruptive to combo decks. Uh So what I actually tried to submit was, I think I tried to submit something that was essentially like a spike tail drake or a spike tail hatchling type creature. Uh But I think that spike tails were already made, but hadn't come out yet. So like, oh, you can't make that. Uh And I was like, but that's kind of what I want. But uh, so we went kind of back and forth on different ideas I basically i told them the idea of what i wanted to do and i got i got really frustrated with the specifics because they kept going no oh, i don't know about that so like the card i think that was like the final version of what i submitted was pretty bad because i think it was like it was like a three casting cost melting mage where they could cast the spell but you could counter it by sacrificing the creature or something so it wasn't even that good uh-huh but i was kind of trusting that they would do the best they could for me based on what they knew I wanted. And that's exactly what happened. Like, they produced a card that was much better than what I actually submitted. That was 100% in the spirit of what I wanted. But if you hadn't seen Plane Shift, you wouldn't have thought that card was printable. Plane Shift was a... The Invasion Block was a big step forward in how good creatures could be. Yeah. Like, Flame Tongue Kavu did not exist, you know, before that, you know? Oh, yeah. So so creatures just had a power had a power creep in Invasion Block that really made Medley Mage possible. How did they come up with the artwork for it? I have no idea. You'd have to ask Christopher Mullen. Okay. So oh, they- no, I, that's <laughs> not true. I know one thing. I always wore baseball caps to all magic tournaments. I was, and not just all magic tournaments, everything. Up until like age 25, maybe age 24. I, I mean, I was just always wearing a baseball cap. Uh-huh. So I believe they told him that I had to have some sort of head covering on in the picture. Oh, interesting. So that's how I got the hood. And then they already had photos of you, so they just gave it to an artist and said, you know, do this likeness. Yeah, and Christopher Muller is a super cool artist. I don't know if you're familiar with him at all, but he writes these like cool sci-fi comic books and it's great stuff. Wow, that's very cool. Did they reveal the card to you before they revealed it to the public? Actually, I don't know. I assume they did, but I don't remember. What did it feel like for the first time to see yourself on a magic card? I don't know. I don't recall anything. You know, I, I knew... There was a lot of lag between when it, you know, I knew it was going to happen. I don't think I had any sort of like, oh, I never imagined it would be like this. Mm-hmm. The coolest part was is that I, in the very first pack I opened, the very first plane shift pack I opened had a medley page. Oh like my goodness. At, at the plane shift pre-release, we did a draft. And it's, of course, Invasion, Invasion, Plane Shift. And in my pack three, I opened a medley page. That's the thing I remember the most. That was pretty cool. I went to the invasion or the plane shift pre-release tournament at Neutral Ground in New York, which is of course like you know Magic Mecca. It was just like you know the place to go in the East Coast at that point. Super cool store. Brian David Marshall was one of the owners, of course. 
and I was signing all the meddling mages and numbering them. So if you've ever seen a meddling mage that's signed by me in really horrendously sloppy handwriting, but has a number on it, that means it's that means that someone opened it at neutral ground the day of the plane shift pre-release. That is incredible. And uh, but yeah, the first draft we did that day because back then you, you, it was much easier to get packs. So you could just draft. I think I opened the pack and got it. And I think I did a I think I did a victory lap around the draft table. That's incredible. Okay, so to all the listeners out there, if you're listening to this and you have a meddling mage that's been signed by Chris that has a number on it and you were there for that pre-release, tweet me on Twitter at KTM Podcast and I would love to see your photo of it. So snap a photo, send it to us. I'd love to see it because that just sounds amazing. I think I've only seen one in like the past decade. Oh my I had goodness. one person come up to me with one and, and I don't know what the rest are. And I don't remember how many there are. Like there might be 10 I don't, I don't even remember. That's just such beautiful history. I love hearing stuff like that. That's amazing. Chris, I also wanted to ask you about something that you mentioned earlier. What was it like playing with John Finkel? For most people, like the question like, what makes him good at magic? I mean, really it boils down to they're just good at the same stuff everyone else is good at, but they're slightly better. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so it's very rare for something to really stand up. I, I do think that, and this is what John would say as well, I think John has always been pretty honest with himself about when he loses, he was he was always the kind of person who, who would try to figure out what he could have done to want to win rather than, you know, blame it on bad luck or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, Magic is an interesting game because some games have an ability to make a great play. In poker, you can make a play that almost nobody else would make and have it work. And you could explain why you did it afterwards as people go, you know what, you're right. That totally makes sense. Chess, for example. In chess, you could see something so early and like, like so far ahead of most other players that it could be considered kind of a great play. So, something that's a great play, but, but if someone didn't do it, it wouldn't be considered a mistake. Magic doesn't really have things like that. Magic doesn't have many plays. Most of the time, and this is what John believes for sure, there's the correct play and everything else is a mistake. Magic doesn't have things where there's a great play, and then there's a good play that most people make, and then there's a mistake. Like Most of the time, there's a correct play, and afterwards, everyone kind of agrees on what it was. And to get great at magic is not about making great plays. It's about eliminating mistakes. So it's about making the same normal play that everyone makes, but doing it every single time. So I think for that reason, it, it becomes difficult to really to, to point to particular things a person does that makes them great because really all they're doing is eliminating blunders. It's not like, oh, in this particular type of game, this player is able to find lines that no one else could because that's just not really how magic works. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if questions like what makes someone good, yeah, I don't know. I don't have a great answer for that. I mean, John is good at most things that involve problem solving and resource allocation and the kind of things that would make someone good at gambling or trading or Agricola or magic or Hearthstone or chess. Like he's good at most of those things. So it's not a surprise. He's, you know, he's just a, a smart guy and he's smart in the, in the right ways that make you good at magic. Why, why he's been so much more successful at magic or why he's the best magic player in the world instead of the best poker player in the world. I, I don't know. I don't know what that, what led to that exactly. Maybe that's just really his, his love, um, which I think is true for most magic players. I mean, you know, the reason people are good at magic is that something else is, is, is usually because like the best magic players could be good at other things that they wanted to be, but many of them have chosen to, you know, shun other activities in favor of magic. I think it's fascinating. I have not heard that perspective before. That is a gem. That is definitely some wisdom. I have some rapid fire questions for you. Sure, let's do them. Okay. Question number one of the five colors of magic, white, blue, black, green, and red, what is your favorite and why? Well, it's not green or white. <laughs> okay. Uh, I would say, um, man, that is tough. It's got to be blue. I and mean, blue is just always, but that, it's just bias. Blue is always the best until, you know, m- most people have been playing magic as long as I have. You know, blue is the best color for the bulk of their life. So uh, it's kind of a biased question, but I'm going to stick with blue. Okay. And why? Because uh, it's the best. <laughs> <laughs> it can do everything. <laughs> what, other, what other reason do you need? Why is it the best? Well, it used to be the best because because creatures were underpowered compared to spells, and blue had the best spells. That's really what it came down to. You know, in the initial original sets, it had ancestral recall, and well, you know, other other colors had healing staff. 
<laughs> and giant growth. <laughs> um, you know, control magic, mana drain. I mean, these cards are just somewhat absurd. That's right. They are absurd. Yeah, but it really comes down to that. I think on a fundamental level, creatures were underpowered and blue's focus was not creatures. Therefore, blue had a concentration in the overpowered parts of the game rather than the underpowered. Got it. Okay. If you could do a two-color combination, what is your favorite two-color combination and why? Uh, I'm going to have to go with blue-white. That's how you cast Meddling Mage. And that's what, you know, all my old vintage decks used to be built around. So, you know, it's all about mana drain and sword postures. Oh, I love those two cards. Question number two. Chris, if you could change something about Magic the Gathering, what would it be? Oh, if I could change something about Magic the Gathering. Um, you know, I don't have any big complaints about Magic the Gathering. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's a tough question. Um, you know, there's obviously a lot of little things that I don't love. I don't love Frexian mana. <laughs> <laughs> That's something I'm not a big fan of. Really? Um, I don't know. I don't think I have a good answer for this. I wish... Uh, yeah, I guess if I if I could change one thing about Magic, I, I wish that the competitive Magic schedule was a more consistent schedule, something like what Star City... Star City scaled back their tournaments a bit this year, but previous to this, like for the previous three years or whatever, the way the Star City tournament system worked is if, if I had a free weekend, I knew that I could go play a standard tournament at a Star City event that was going to be meaningful in the scheme of Star City, the Star City circuit. I could go play a meaningful tournament that week in a format that I was familiar with. So my the so the the problems of my personal schedule with my family life didn't matter because when a free weekend rolled around, I would have a tournament to play. With the Grand Prix circuit, that's just not the case. Like on any on a given random free weekend, there might not be a Grand Prix. If there is a Grand Prix, it could be one of four different formats. I recently like I, I had a a lot of times I work out my Grand Prix schedule way ahead of time because I have to to plan things with my family. And I'll often have four Grand Prix in a row that are four different formats, which makes preparing for them not that easy oh, for yeah. someone who is already having trouble fitting magic into their life. So I love, you know, I love limited. Um, and I wish there were more limited tournaments. That's part of the problem is that there's just very few limited Grand Prix. And I like that there's all these diverse magic formats, but when you have to play, when my schedule works out where I have to go to three Grand Prix in a row and they're three different formats, it can be a little frustrating when I'm going through a period of time where uh, I don't have enough time to prepare for three different formats. Got it. So I guess that's what I would change. I, I, I just, the idea that I could find out like, oh, I have this weekend free, I should go to a magic tournament and then... Just that would always be the case that there'd be a great match tournament for me to play in that was actually relevant to the Pro Tour. That would be awesome. But that's a lot of Grand Prix, though, I guess. Oh, yeah. And you said earlier, you definitely prefer paper magic over online magic. Well, so that's, I mean, yeah, we could get into the fact that what could make online magic a better experience. Um, although I, I actually have very few negative, um, I've had very few negative experiences with magic online. But I think for most people, they just enjoy Paper Magic a lot more. I think that it's a minority of people who, they might enjoy the convenience of Magic Online, but there's still something lacking compared to just going to a tournament. I know what you mean. There's definitely such an energy of being in a room full of people and everyone is so amped and so excited to be playing. Yeah. Question number three, if you could give something to every Magic player, what would it be? <laughs> These are strange questions. Um... I could give something to every magic player. I don't even. Yeah, I don't know. I'm bad at these 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 questions. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm such a. It's, this is very hard for for people like me to answer this question. Like when I'll just give them all money and then they can get whatever they want with it. That's how people like me think. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. I, I do. I can give away my my wisdom. You know, I'm 41 years old, so I'm older than most magic players. So. I can give advice. I think that you already are going to be giving people advice through this podcast. I definitely am excited for the next 20 years of Magic because I see myself as like a 50-year-old Magic player. And like, I, I'm, I'm really waiting for like those white hair. Like, I mean, I know there already are, but just like to be playing Magic for like 40 years or something like that. And then being at some GP and you're like super old, <laughs> you know, like being super old and still playing at a GP. Or like on the Pro Tour, and you've got like your cane, that would just be amazing. <laughs> yeah, I do sometimes wonder if that's going to happen. But Question number four. Chris, what do you see in the future of Magic the Gathering? Well, uh, that's tough. I, I expect that I expect the online 
aspect of it to improve and probably get more interwoven with the live Pro Tour aspect of it. Um, for me, the big question is, is are they going to mess with the game to try to achieve wider popularity? I think that if you want to make the best game, you're necessarily going to have less people playing. A lot of people play Hearthstone. You know, if you go onto Twitch, there's a lot of people streaming Hearthstone and watching Hearthstone compared to Magic. You know, obviously a game like League of Legends or whatever are on a totally different scale of how many people are participating in those games. Given the complexity of Magic, not not just complexity of gameplay, but the complexity of, of learning to play. You know, I've been playing Magic for 20 years, and, I, and when people ask me, how do I learn to play Magic? I still don't even know what to tell them. I'm like, well, you could buy these decks and kind of play those against each other, but that's not really going to teach you this, and you could play these decks. It's just Magic is a big... It's a big hurdle to play Magic. And I'm actually always shocked at how many people do it already. So I hope that they don't make any sort of significant effort to kind of dumb down the game to expand um, interest. And I don't think they're going to. Mm -hmm. So I guess that's what I don't want for the future of Magic. Um, As far as predicting what's going to happen, man... I don't like predictions. I, it's just we're always so bad at them. I mean, if you'd ask me, I mean, Magic looks pretty competitive. Magic is not that much different now than it was ten years ago. So I don't know if I see any real reason. I think it's going to be super different ten years from now. Um, I certainly don't see any reason to think it can't just keep going the way it is. I mean, this, the, the rate of change has been pretty slow, mm-hmm. and I don't see, like I said, it's just too complex of a game to ever really do what some of these other games are doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I get why people are frustrated that like, wow, there's this many people watching, you know, whatever. And there's only 20,000 people watching the pro tour. Right. I don't like making predictions, but I, I, so I'm, I'm going to tell you what I hope doesn't happen. I hope they don't, I hope they don't change the game in a desperate grab for uh popularity with the masses. Yeah. I kind of like it the way it is. Okay. And my last question, Chris, is that do you have any asks or requests of the audience? No, I mean, it's hard for me to ask anything more of the Magic community. People are so nice to me. Like, it's really absurd how nice people are to me. I mean, I've been getting a bunch of cards from uh, Puka Trade or whatever, however you pronounce it. Oh, yeah, I love Puka Trade. And every time someone sends me a card, they always include, like, the nicest note. Everyone's like, oh, I'm rooting for you. I hope you make the Hall of Fame. Like, everyone's just so nice to me. Like, it would be absurd for me to have any requests of the Magic community at this point. Just keep doing what you're doing. Because <laughs> I, re- I really, like, like I said earlier, like, you know, if I make the Magic Hall of Fame, people aren't going to be any nicer than me. It, it can't really get any better. That is so wonderful to hear. Where can listeners find you on social media? Uh, Meddling Mage, at Meddling Mage on Twitter, really. That's the best fi- That's the best way to find me. You know, tweet me about magic or metal. That's what most people do. Those are the two main uh, main areas of my Twitter interactions. Magic and metal, like metal, like heavy metal music. That's right. Oh, wow. You're a fan of metal. I am. Tell us a little bit about metal. Uh, and we could do another two hours on metal. If oh, you want. really? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> what really draws you to that genre of music? Uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, I've always liked it since I was, you know, early teens. I've always liked metal. Um, it's It's definitely... Well, first of all, let me say it's definitely like the the music itself because I'm not I'm but I'm not really part of like the metal scene or anything. Like when I go to the metal shows in Philly, I don't know anybody. I don't even know the lyrics of most of the music I listen to, so it's nothing about like it's not really the culture of it that I'm into. Although it's fine, it's just not. I maybe think I don't know. I think I I think it's very common for for sort of um, middle class suburban kids in the U.S. to get into sort of punk or metal or whatever, maybe because their own lives are so sort of ho-hum that it's their way of sort of, you know, glimpsing into the darkness or something. I don't know. I, I do think that it's like my, my own life has no no aggression in it. It has no uh, has none of the things that you would associate with extreme music. And I don't really listen to regular metal either. I listen to, I mean, I do, but I listen to a lot of stuff that most people would barely recognize as music at all. <laughs> so, yeah, oh, my favorite band is definitely Neurosis. I went out to their three thirtieth anniversary shows in San Francisco about a month ago. Actually, there, were, there was another Magic player from San Francisco who went up to all the shows as well. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know what it is. Ma- music is tough. You know, you hear music and it's like a physical reaction you have, right? Whether I mean, I don't know if you're a music fan or not, but music is not. I don't know if we really choose what music we we like. It's like what what we're born to like. And I mean, obviously, it's not totally true since there's a big cultural aspect. To music, where obviously people who grew up in whatever certain places or around certain things like certain music. So clearly, there's a nurture, not just nature to it. But uh, I don't know. I've just always liked it. Like I said, it's also pretty typical for 
boring middle class kids in the US to be into rebellious music. That's very cool. Chris, thank you so much for joining us on Kitchen Table Magic. I really enjoyed it. It's an honor having you on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. I, uh, you know, I hope everyone was uh, satisfied with the, the memories I was able to dig up. A lot of this stuff is from a long time ago, and I worry that it's fading away. So I guess this, these podcasts are one of the ways we prevent that from happening. So thanks a lot. Hope you enjoyed my conversation with Chris Pakula, the meddling mage. It's such a rare opportunity to hear from someone who's been in the game since the beginning. And don't forget, if you're one of those lucky people who were back at neutral ground in that draft and got a signed copy of Meddling Mage from Chris, please tweet me at KTM Podcast. I really want to take a look at one of those photos. Go say hi to Chris on Twitter. His handle is at Meddling Mage. Also, special thanks to Travis Padilla for helping me get in touch with Chris for this interview. I have just a couple more housekeeping things I want to share before I preview the guest of the next episode. I want to thank everyone for listening to Kitchen Table Magic. Listenership has exploded from a few hundred plays to now almost 10,000 plays within just the last month. Thank you to everyone listening that has shared Kitchen Table Magic with a friend. And also thank you to MTG Cast for allowing Kitchen Table Magic to join your community. If you've noticed, I've made slight changes to every episode of the show. That's because of all the wonderful feedback that I get from you, the listener. I love hearing from you. So please tweet me at KTM Podcast. Write me an email, sam at kitchentablemagic.org. Coming up in the next episode of Kitchen Table Magic. So it actually started with just a few girls that I knew in like my living room. Um, and it wasn't long before one of them asked me, have you thought about doing something bigger with us? And I hadn't really put a lot of thought into it, but when they said that, I was like, why wouldn't I? Let's do this. Uh, so I, at the time, Card Kingdom had like just opened up. It was all the talk in the gamer world in the area. And I decided to talk to them about potentially having us host events. Um, and they were thrilled at the idea. They were fully supportive of it. We right away scheduled an event. Uh, we thought that bi-weekly would be good cadence, uh, but it was not long at all before we realized that it should be weekly because the attendance went from the first event being eight to 12 to before you knew it, it was like 20 people and we were getting like 20 people every week. Yeah, that was that's really how the beginning started. I'm talking to Tifa Robles, the founder of Lady Planeswalker Society. With over 80 chapters all over the world, LPS is the premier group for fostering an inclusive and diverse community. Lady Planeswalker Society is also the official learn-to-play group for Wizards of the Coast. I'm looking forward to sharing my interview with Tifa Robles, all on the next episode of Kitchen Table Magic.